You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. When it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices, things can get complicated and time-consuming fast. Now you can assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more with a single platform, Vanta. Vanta's leading trust management platform helps you continuously monitor compliance alongside reporting and tracking risk. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn why thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection, unify risk management, and streamline security reviews. Watch Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. Under Armour's MyFitnessPal app has sustained a data breach. Boeing's WannaCry incident is minor, but a timely warning that this particular threat hasn't vanished. The Lazarus Group is showing fresh signs of activity against its usual targets. Questions about the security of India's Athar circulate. Baltimore and Atlanta incidents show the ransomware threat to city governments. An FBI agent is charged with leaking secret documents. And updates on the Novichok affair and the Facebook data scandal. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, March 30th, 2018. Sports apparel manufacturer Under Armour disclosed yesterday that data associated with 150 million users of the company's fitness app MyFitnessPal have been exposed. Information at risk is said to include usernames, email addresses, and hashed passwords. The company began investigating on March 25th when it discovered that an unauthorized party had accessed the data in February. Under Armour acquired MyFitnessPal for $475 million in February 2015, so it's not exactly a recent acquisition, but there are surely lessons to be drawn with respect to security due diligence during mergers and acquisitions. Despite the British spelling of its name, Under Armour is based in Baltimore, in fact quite close to Fort McHenry. The data security issue with MyFitnessPal is the latest in a series of incidents involving other companies' fitness trackers. Under Armour's public disclosure four days after realizing that there had been a problem seems commendably fast, especially given the company's notification of affected users before making a general announcement yesterday. Investigation and remediation are in progress. Boeing insists that reports of a massive WannaCry infection at its South Carolina manufacturing facilities have been massively exaggerated. 
The infection was minor and swiftly contained and did not affect production or business operations. But it's worth noting that WannaCry is still a risk and that enterprises shouldn't drop their guard. Unaffected by Pyongyang's recent diplomatic charm offensive, North Korea's Lazarus Group is showing fresh signs of activity, probing financial sector targets, and looking for ways of obtaining cryptocurrency. This is a long-standing campaign on the DPRK's part, as it looks for ways of redressing its sanctions-exacerbated financial shortfalls through crypto mining and cyber theft. Reports of vulnerabilities in India's Athar National Identification System circulate, despite official assurances that all's well. Baltimore's 911 system hack last Sunday turns out to have been ransomware, city officials said yesterday. The city was able to restore service after a few hours of resorting to manual backup. Atlanta's SamSam infestation was far more serious and enduring. That city continues recovery and remediation. Consensus among observers is that U.S. municipal governments need to devote some close attention to protecting themselves against such attacks, which are likely to continue. Lenovo is looking over its shoulder at Huawei's regulatory problems in the U.S., The FCC is pushing to restrict Huawei systems from use by U.S. wireless providers, and Lenovo prudently thinks that it may be the next Chinese firm to find itself in the security crosshairs of regulators. And a Crypto Wars update. The U.S. Department of Justice, especially the FBI, are meeting with researchers who claim to have a third way that will satisfy both sides of the controversy. Such a mutually acceptable compromise seems unlikely to us, but we'll keep you posted. Some of the approaches being recommended involve key escrow systems, widely distributed keys that would require public consensus for decryption, and so on. In any case, this suggests that another round of engagements in Crypto War 3 is about to begin. The FBI is having a rackety week in cybersecurity and counterintelligence. First came a report that the imbroglio over decrypting the iPhone used by the San Bernardino jihadist gunman could have been avoided entirely with better communication among field, leadership, and techs. Now an agent has been arrested and charged with leaking secret documents. Terry Albury, an FBI special agent assigned to the Minneapolis field office, has been charged with unauthorized transmission of classified national defense information to a journalist, apparently to The Intercept. Albury's attorneys say he was, quote, driven by a conscientious commitment to long-term national security and addressing the well-documented systemic biases within the FBI, end quote, and that he takes full responsibility for his actions. The Intercept, the same publication to which ex-NSA staffer and contractor Reality Winner is accused of leaking, made Freedom of Information Act requests that suggested to investigators they were already in possession of classified material they eventually published. And the FBI will receive more uncomfortable attention from the Justice Department's Inspector General. The IG has opened an inquiry into compliance with legal requirements in applications the Bureau filed with the U.S. Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court relating to an unnamed U.S. person. Russia has responded to punitive U.S. diplomatic moves with tit-for-tat expulsions and a consular closure of its own. U.S. official policy toward Russia is hardening, with concern running high about Russia's threat to the grid. The Russian ambassador to the U.S. is having trouble getting officials to take meetings with him. It's thought that the U.S. closing of Russia's Seattle consulate may have been particularly painful to Moscow. 
It's thought to have been a major center of spying on technological development. For their own different reasons, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and WikiLeaks' Julian Assange have had a bad PR week. Mr. Zuckerberg's response to Facebook's data scandal hasn't gone over particularly well with users, and his Silicon Valley peers aren't showing him much love either. Apple CEO Tim Cook's commentary on the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica affair verges on schadenfreude. And Mr. Assange looks more like Russian stooge than libertarian activist. He's still got support from Pamela Anderson, but a number of others who've applauded his conduct of WikiLeaks are very much put off by his retailing of the Kremlin line in the matter of the attempted murder in Salisbury of Sergei and Yulia Skripal by nerve agent. everybody, I want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor, Splunk. You know, you need to keep operations humming around the clock, but potential disruptions are everywhere. Splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime. The world's largest enterprises rely on Splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient, resilient, and innovative. With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Professor Awais Rashid. He's a professor of cybersecurity at the University of Bristol. Um, welcome back. Um, you know, certainly um, Bitcoin has been in the news lately with the uh, wide uh, range of prices as it's been swinging back and forth. And uh, we wanted to touch today on blockchains and uh, specifically issues of trust. What, what do you have to share about that today? So Bitcoin is actually a great example of blockchains. And, and there is a view, which is not incorrect, that Bitcoin, because of the underlying cryptographic algorithms that uh, underpin it, uh, is trustless by design. True, that might be for the cryptographic protocols that underpin Bitcoin. Uh, some of the studies that we have actually undertaken show that the wider ecosystem 
in which Bitcoin exists and where the transactions happen actually is shaped quite strongly by both human and organizational aspects of trust. So when we're talking about these trust issues, I mean, what sort of factors come into play? Well, if you think about it, Bitcoin itself is cryptocurrency. And yes, uh, it was uh, designed to be not under the control of any institution per se, hence be a purely decentralized uh, decentralized uh, ledger-based system. But as Bitcoin has evolved, there are a number of organizations that have evolved in the ecosystem. So you have got the exchanges. You have actually also the core uh, core development team as well, which is also in some form a group or organization. You've got escrow systems and all those kind of things. So while the cryptocurrency itself may not require any centralized control or trust, when transactions happen, you still have to trust all these parties. You have to trust, for example, that the core development team is doing its job properly. You have to trust that you can exchange currency through through the exchange mechanisms that exist. You have to trust in escrow systems and so on. And, and of course, the only thing that the ledger confirms is that the transaction has taken place. It doesn't actually confirm that goods have been delivered. And that's why you have all these additional systems that have come into play. So the key thing to think about is that as we are moving towards a world where blockchains are being seen as key solution for a number of applications from, for example, things like energy trading to even even providing security for Internet of Things devices and, and things like that, it is very important to understand that it is not just the blockchain that matters. There are lots of complex human and organizational aspects of trust that come into play when people use these these systems and there will need to be organizations or systems that would need to evolve beyond the blockchain uh, in whatever context it is deployed for that trust to be engendered and people actually being willing to engage with that particular application of blockchain. As always, Awais Rashid, thanks for joining us. My guest today is Lauren Buchanan. She's a principal investigator at Secure Decisions, but she joins us today to talk about NICE, the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education, where she serves as co-chair of the competitions subgroup. The National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education is a working group that is a cooperative work alliance between the government. NIST is currently heading the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education, um, but lots of government agencies participate. There are members of academia, uh, both higher education and K-12 and informal education and industry as well. Uh, so it, it's kind of the entire universe coming together to say we need to do more and to educate the cybersecurity professionals as well as create a pipeline for the next generation of cybersecurity professionals. And you were a part of that pipeline. Uh, you're the co-chair of the competition subgroup. What does your group do there? So the competition subgroup is is really trying to promote a wide spectrum of cyber competitions that are intended to advance knowledge, skills, and abilities uh, in the cyber fields. The, the idea is to help public and private competitions develop, providing guidelines, standards, and best practices. We have a number of projects that are currently focused on identifying how to build a cyber competition as well as how to participate in a cyber competition because we recognize that not everybody is clued in to the fact that these competitions exist and how they can participate. And can you give us an idea of uh, what are the range of, of ages of people who participate in these competitions? Oh, 
Well, uh, there are competitions for middle school kids, clubs and uh, groups like the Cyber Patriots that have teams of students who learn while they're competing and then actually have the the joy of going off and, and doing a national competition if they have made through the qualifying rounds. There are college students, high school students, people in the workforce, people who are transitioning into cyber but have spent years working elsewhere. It's the full gamut of novices to experts from middle school on up, and I think that probably in the next few years we'll actually see some form of competitions for elementary school students. And, and what does the, the actual environment of, of having this be a competition, uh, what does that provide uh, versus, you know, things like regular classroom learning, continuing education, those sorts of things? Well, depending on the competition, whether it's a solo competition, an online competition, or a team competition, you can get different things out of it. But in reality, most of the competitions allow you the opportunity to practice something that you may have conceptually learned but now you actually get to apply those skills and knowledge into solving a problem, a challenge that's been set forth. And sometimes these challenges are incredibly real-world based. Um, there are some competitions at the collegiate level where an organization entity has been described, an environment has been set up, there are real-world regulatory concerns, and real-world failures, both in terms of cybersecurity or maybe even just uh, business failures that you now have to understand and deal with and confront, just as you would in the real world. So it's it's a microcosm of the things a cyber professional might actually do in their day-to-day job. Um, and when I say cyber professional, we're talking the gamut here from cyber defense to forensics to policy. Competitions address all topics in cyber domain at this point. If folks want to find out more, uh, what's the best way for them to get more information? The National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education uh, has a website that's uh, part of the NIST.gov website. Um, And the competition subgroup has a page there. And many of our publications are available for download there. Um, We also have a letter that is uh, 10 Things Parents Need to Know About Cyber Competitions, which is useful in case parents are wondering well, cyber competition, doesn't that mean hacking? Because it's not at all what it means. People can also go to CyberCompex, the Cyber Competition Exchange. That's cybercompex.org. It's a social media kind of website, social networking site for people who are interested in cyber competitions. They have calendars. They have information. They are hosting the podcasts that the competition subgroup is currently doing, which actually talk with various people who are involved in cyber competitions whether you're looking to host a competition or you're just interested in participating as a competitor. I think it's important that that people understand that cyber competitions, while they're incredibly serious because they are a competition uh, and people want to win, they're also an excellent way to get to know other people. That is not just the competitors, but people who are at different stages in in their careers who uh, may be able to connect you with additional resources. They are an excellent way to find people who are trying to hire cybersecurity professionals in various roles. And it's a great way to discover more about cybersecurity because even in a narrowly focused competition, there are going to be people with different backgrounds. And uh, if you meet them and have a conversation with them, if it's an in-person event, it's a great way to learn more. Even if it's a solo online competition, 
just seeing the questions that are asked and the things that are presented in terms of the competition is always a learning experience. That's Lauren Buchanan. She's a principal investigator at Secure Decisions, and she's also the co-chair of the competition subgroup for NICE, the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber.